Welcome to the podcast of the preaching ministry of LifePoint Church, led by Pastor Lane Harrison. We pray this ministry is a blessing for your life. For more information about LifePoint, please visit lifepointozark.com. For more information and resources from Pastor Lane, please visit mlaneharrison.com. All right, Daniel, I'm going to start a new series today, a study of the book of Daniel, and today's message is entitled, A Life on Mission for the King. Let's go immediately to the text. I'm going to read the first seven verses, which will be our text for this morning's message, and then we'll continue with the message. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, used without blemish, of good appearance, and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and the wine that he drank. They were, to be, they were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. May God bless the reading the hearing, the understanding, and the obeying of his word today. Most book studies, when I begin, I want to give acute focus on understanding the text, the context, so that I can accurately interpret and apply for us. In this study, I'm mostly concerned about accurate pronunciation. (laughs) Thank goodness I grew up in Arkansas where we're so concerned with that high culture pronunciation, and I can deliver that to you. You've heard those now. There's no need for us to repeat them. Uh, You can see them there as they are spelled in the text. The book of Daniel holds some of the most iconic of all Bible stories that we are taught from the earliest of ages, and in only 12 short chapters. I mean, many people have heard of the fiery furnace, of the lion's den, maybe the most notable of all the stories. But even the opening story of the king's food that we'll see next week, and and then later in the book, the dreams that Daniel interprets for the king, they all stick in our mind and they stick in our heart. This book is is unique. It, It spans seven decades. It spans multiple foreign rulers that will rule over Judah, And it spans many cultures that even in their day were worlds apart, let alone from our day. And right in the midst of it all, there are four men whose lives were fully surrendered to demonstrate the faithfulness of a sovereign God who was sufficient to empower them to fulfill the destiny of his purpose ordained for their lives. That's powerful. 
right in the middle of all of these decades and all of these foreign rulers, four men who were used by one God who was in control of it all. That's what we're going to see, friends. You see, Daniel is not a study to learn how to be like Daniel. Daniel is a study of his life to see the God that he reveals who is worthy of our full surrender to his purpose and to his plan. And so I asked this morning, who's ready to study Daniel? Yes. Who wants to volunteer to go into the lion's den in the fiery furnace first? That's what this study's all about. Friends, here's what I want us to begin with today. I love your spirit. God is sovereign and worthy of full surrender to live for the purpose he ordains for his glory. Every day of life has a way of causing us to question, is he worthy? Is he worthy? This study will tell us he is. Sovereignty. What do we mean when we use such a big word? We kind of have a concept of we agree with, but defining it can be a little more uh, sticky depending on the situation, that kind of thing. We just simply mean to say that God is superior in all of his attributes and in all of his ways over all things. Without question. Psalm 115.3 tells us, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. And you know what they put at the end of that sentence? A period. You know why they put that there? Because the sentence is finished. It's done. You don't get to add to it. There's no but. There's no and. There's no anything that redirects us. It's just God does all that he pleases. You know what that word all means? You're going to hear this stupid joke a lot. In the Greek, it means all. That's what it means. And why is that important for us? Because sometimes we want to create a category that's not included in the all with our life. That's not part of it. Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 19, verse 26, that things that are impossible with man are not impossible with God. With God, what does Jesus say? All things are possible. You see, so when we say God is sovereign, what we mean to say is that he does what he wills and nothing can thwart him. Nothing challenges him. Nothing stops him from accomplishing his will. And friends, if you're going to entrust your whole life to someone, you want to know that they are sovereign. You want to know that they are sovereign. I want us to see three realms in which we are encouraged to see and to trust God's sovereignty today because of his plan and his purpose. Three realms of sovereignty that Daniel opens his book and introduces to us. The first realm is in verses one and two, is God is sovereign over history. God is sovereign over history. He begins in a very familiar pattern of setting the historical context. Judah has been headed in the wrong direction for a long time because of her kings. And it tells us about her kings in 2 Kings that they did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord, but rather they walked in the ways of the kings of Israel. Not a compliment for a king under God. And we saw last week where God was warning his people in Judah 
Isaiah chapter 7 and 8 about the coming judgment if they did not pay attention to the warning. Spoiler alert, they didn't pay attention. 140 or so years later, here we are. God's judgment is coming. What does God's people, what what do God's people say about his judgment? Particularly, what does this person, Daniel, have to say and tell us about the judgment of God coming upon the people of Judah? In 605 BC, he tells us that Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, besieged Judah. In other words, he took over final control of the southern nation in the land of Israel. Israel, the northern kingdom, had already been conquered, and the southern kingdom was now besieged. And as was customary for the Babylonian empire, when they invaded a place, they would go in and they would take vessels from whatever was the principal worship temple in that area. Typically, when they invaded, they would take the idol that represented the god of that temple. In the God, the Almighty One, we don't have any images crafted after his likeness. Why? Second commandment, thou shalt have no graven images before me. Because there is no image, there is no graphic that captures our God. But we do have utensils, if you will, that we use in the worship of God. And we know for the people of God, these things are typically stored in the Ark of the Covenant. And so these were the things that Nebuchadnezzar had taken and returned to, it tells us, the land of Shinar. There's no small amount of irony that God is taking these things back to the very place that in Genesis we are told God confused the languages at the Tower of Babel and split the people so that they wouldn't think that they were God. There's a message in that for God's people. That's another sermon for another day. But what I want you to see here is they were routing the people and they were exalting the Babylonian God by the use of Judah's representatives of God. It was a reminder, not unlike the way we put mounts on the wall today after a conquest that is successful in the woods. It was a reminder of superiority through conquest, of which God it was that was supposedly superior to the other gods because of military conquests. And so these items would have served the same purpose for the Babylonian temple. The book of Daniel begins, though, by presenting to us two presiding realities that set the stage historically and contextually for the whole book and the whole story that Daniel will present us. The first presiding reality is this. It is man striving among men to make a name for himself in the annals of history. Nebuchadnezzar had nothing short of taking over the whole world. And that was his goal. And he did a pretty good job of it in a lot of ways. Man striving to make a name for himself in the annals of history. Secondly, the presiding reality though is this. There is a sovereign God who is directing history for his purpose and for his glory. You see, Nebuchadnezzar was taking over the world. There was already a king who was enthroned above, who is the Lord of all creation. God rules over the kingdoms and the cultures of this world. It is God who rules over the kingdoms and the rulers of this world. It is God who is sovereign over the events and over all History And this we read in verse two, Daniel tells us 
And the Lord gave Jehoiakim into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. Do you ever wonder why it is that Daniel would state that God had done this? Did he have some kind of secret information? Was there a data leak that he got the access to so that he could know what was transpiring? No, he didn't have access to any information that anyone else had. The only thing Daniel had was faith in God and remembering the promises of his word. And that makes a difference in our life, friends, every time. That's why he begins by declaring that it was God's hand at work in history and in the lives of his people that was transpiring now. You see, Babylon was only as powerful and as victorious as God allowed them to be and as his purposes to use them would allow for them. This is not new to Christians. This is not new to those of us that study the Bible and learn the ways of God. The apostles instruct the rulers of the first century AD in this very same theological conviction because they stood before in Acts chapter four and they spoke of the crucifixion of Jesus in this way, that that man that came from heaven who was God came and you crucified him. You only did that because God allowed you to. He willingly laid down his life, but you are guilty for that. And here is what he said. He came and God allowed to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. That's what they told the rulers. In other words, what you did was only done because God allowed it. That's what it means for God to be sovereign. So why would Daniel state this? Because he was trusting God. Sinclair Ferguson An author and theologian counsels us in this way. We must never forget that this is the meaning of history on both the cosmic and the personal scales. A spiritual conflict lies at the heart of every event, however great, however mundane. Be careful, Christian, that your eyes are opened by faith to see the hand of God at work in all of history. For God's sovereignty over history comforts us that no matter what is going on, we can always rest confident that he is in control. The second realm that we are introduced to here is the realm of events. God is sovereign over the events of this world. Verses three through five The Babylonians were known to disperse people once they had conquered a land. That's what it tells us here. The king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, used without blemish of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. Their foreign policy strategy, if you will, was to divide the royal families particularly and the nobility because they had the greatest means to rise up in revolt against the kingdom. The remainder of the country they would leave intact because the economic engine provided resources for the kingdom of Babylon. They didn't want to shut everything down because as they produced, it ultimately got 
return to Babylon in higher taxes. And this is what they wanted, but they didn't want them to be united so that they could revolt against Babylon. They didn't move everyone, but they were strategic about who it is they chose. Specifically, it says they chose the youth. Why? Minds ready to be formed and shaped for the future. Minds that don't have long and lengthy histories and loyalties to the days and ages that they have seen. Minds that aren't fully formed and wise in the ways of that kingdom that can be shaped anew in the ways of the new kingdom. You see, Daniel and his friends were among those who were chosen. And listen, friends, if you do a little work here, we think of youth, we typically think of, of, of teens. We're not even sure Daniel had reached his teens by this time. He could have been as young as 10, 11, or 12 years old. Surely he was not older than 14 or 15 on the top side. Why? Because his writings, he is already personally involved in each of them throughout. And this book will span seven decades. He will be an old man before the book is finished in history. And ultimately he writes it later. That's why we understand what his age likely was very young they brought them to Babylon and they immersed them in Babylonian culture. They taught them a new language, particularly at this time. The Akkadian language would have been the predominant language being spoken in Babylon. And scholars tell us it's the most difficult, one of the most difficult of all languages of human history to learn. That's significant when next chapter and a chapter after that, we begin to learn that Daniel and his three friends not only learned the language, they mastered it in the same amount of time so that they got the king's attention by their master of it. They were introduced to education and literature, traditions, to food and to religion that, that included things like from divination, in other words, the dark spirits of the world, dealing with the devil, if you will, and also astrology, where they were looking out beyond their imagination, trying to predict the future. These are the things the human soul has always longed for. Power and might and knowledge and wisdom that is beyond us. And why education and literature? Because they were taking these young minds who were ready to be formed and they were fashioning them along the heroes of Babylon. They were fashioning them along the gods that were victorious in their new culture, in their new ways. And they were introducing them to the values of their culture and their world so that they would come to value those things above and beyond where they had been born. The Babylonian foreign policy strategy was simple. Immerse the younger generation so to brainwash them to see the whole world from a Babylonian perspective and to value what it was that made Babylon great so that if they ever returned, they would be an ambassador for Babylon. One scholar notes regarding their training, the deeper issue to recognize here is simply this. The ungodly think differently from the godly. That's really helpful for us a few thousand years later to recognize and to come to grips with. This is evident not simply in the language they use, but in the whole way of looking at life, friends, the ungodly view life without God. He's just absent. 
He's neglected, he's dismissed, he's disregarded, he's not included. That's an ungodly view of world and life, of events. God is not in their thoughts. God is, uh, has no fear before their eyes as the scriptures teach they ought to be. And their writing and their teaching convey a completely different worldview from scripture. They tell stories with different heroes. And so we pledge our allegiance to those who shine in Babylon's lights and not Judah's. We will later learn Daniel and his friends not only succeed in their studies, but they excel beyond all others. But listen to this. This is gonna challenge us, friends. But instead of losing their religion, it strengthened it. It strengthened it. And right there, friends, is our Christian hope with a missiological impulse in it. As it turns out, we will see that the one who is leading Daniel and his friends was greater than the one who was warring against them. How often we pray, God, show me your will. But when he opens up a way, we start looking for something different. No, I didn't mean that will. I meant this other one. Oh, I thought you wanted God's will. I confess this, when I look back on my life, had I known God's will and all that it included, I would have done everything I could to look for a different way. But looking back, I wouldn't change for anything. That was their strategy. Win them over. Feed them the richest. Pleasures forevermore, they promise. And then deceive them by clouding and confusing their view of life and the world and all things. You see, friends, Daniel and his friends become a model for us, not to emulate them, but to follow the Lord as they did. Though immersed, they did not conform to the culture of their Babylonian world. In each situation, they were transformed by the one who was within them, and they remained faithful as witnesses to him, even under the threat of life and safety. One verse for our understanding from Joseph helps us gain perspective and application for our own life. We know the story of Joseph, who was sold into slavery by his brothers, and he was taken from that band of slave traders and sold to the Pharaoh of Egypt, who considered himself God of the world. And he was raised up, not because of Pharaoh's greatness, but because of God's favor and sovereignty. Twice he was brought to be the second ruler of the land under that man that thought he was God himself, Pharaoh. And as the famine hit and struck back home, his brothers had to come multiple times to get food because God had given Joseph such a wisdom to foresee what was coming and to understand how to live now for that day. And that's what he did. And the whole world came to Joseph to be supplied for their needs. Towards the end of the story, Joseph has already known who these guys were. And, and he sent them back a couple of times. But on this trip, 
he's going to show to them who he is. And he reveals himself to his brothers and they are stricken in heart, afraid because of all of those decades that they've been living with the guilt and the condemnation of their sin. Now they were facing judgment because the truth of the one they had sold out was sitting before them and their life hung in the balance of his hands. And you know what Joseph said about all that? All of the wrong accusations of rape that had been pushed against him by Pharaoh's wife and all of those times of hardship of being forgotten by the baker and the cupbearer and all those. Jacob said this. He didn't say it's your fault. He said this. What you meant for evil, God used for good. That's how God works. Regardless of what others intended, God had a higher purpose for Daniel and his friends. You see, friends, God's sovereignty over events strengthens us so that no matter what happens, we can remain steadfast knowing this, he is working for our good. But maybe what we most want to know is this. Is God sufficient for and is he worthy of my life? Four main characters of this book are identified, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And they're placed under the chief eunuch, Ashpenaz, and there they are given new names. I've already pronounced those for you perfectly correct, so I'll let you refer to the earlier part of the recording for that. Why new names? These verses hold great significance for them even more so than we might think now because as important as names are to us now, they don't even touch the importance of that day and time. Their names connected to them, to their familial heritage and the lineage, not only of their family, but of their nation and ultimately directly to their God because of who they were, what, what tribe they were a part of. And because of that, when that name was changed, it was an effort to sever those connections and the remembrance of all of that. If I call you something enough, you'll begin to believe it about yourself. That was the ideology of the Babylonians. What they didn't understand is these four men happened to have a deeper connection than only their names. Their new names represented the purpose of their new education and training in Babylon, though, to embrace the heritage of Babylon above Judah to the fullest extent. But maybe of greatest significance that we see here is a new reality that they had to face. Scholars tell us that very likely, though this isn't directly addressed, but very likely because they were put directly under the chief eunuch and under his command and they were purposed and trained to serve the king, they had to become eunuchs in order to do that. They were made eunuchs to serve the king. And so we can say that in every way, their, their life was radically altered on the outside. Mutilation of children has always been a tactic of the enemy. In every age, in many different ways. And one can only imagine what, what would this significant of the changes do to them, not just on the outside, but on the inside. 
Why? Because we understand the effort is to confuse the very core of their identity. And we even see today that the mutilation and the alteration of bodily aspects are confusing our generation to not even know who they are themselves. It is not new to the ways of humanity. It is distinctive to the ways of the enemy. It causes us to ask, friends, is it fair that young men who love God get treated this way? Is it fair that young women, that young people who sell themselves out to remain faithful to God, is it fair that they are treated this way? While we may ask that question, hear the message that we are studying to heed Daniel never hints at any speculation of wondering for himself. He accepted the hand of God for his life. And he never wavered from his faith in God. That means that the question we really should be asking in our study is this. How is it that one remains resolute and faithful to trust and to serve God when life gets turned upside out and inside down. You see what I did there? That's just how confusing it would have been for them. This is the purpose for Daniel to write, to encourage people to stand for God, confident that he is in control at all times, in every situation, to accomplish his purpose. Daniel declares God's sovereignty in the biggest issues of history as well as the most intimate details of life to ensure that we know this, God is in fact worthy of your all and to encourage us to trust in him. Friends, God's sovereignty over the realm of life emboldens us so that no matter what happens, no matter what it is that God calls us to, we walk confidently by faith that he will empower us and he will work through us for his glory. God is sovereign over history. God is sovereign over every event of life. God is sovereign over your life. I want to offer three gospel applications today to help us make some sense personally of all of this. Daniel declares... God's sovereignty over history, life, over our very identity, that we're all in God's hands. He's, he's got the whole world in his hands. Somebody ought to write a song about that. And, and, and it's under the sovereign care of a God who is what? Who is worthy. And need I remind us, this is the God we worship. This is the God we serve. This is the God in whose name we gather today. The God in whose name we bear as Christians, the God in whose name we live our whole life. Every follower of Jesus Christ must learn this lesson to trust God's sovereignty for all of life. Not just to believe in it, but to trust. But to trust. Paul declares that trusting God's sovereignty is inherent to our salvation in Jesus Christ when he states in one of the most Loved and famous verses 
in all of his writings, Romans chapter eight, verse 28. And it says this, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. Man, if you don't know that verse, you ought to look it up today. You ought to memorize it. You ought to take it to heart and you ought to let it sink in. But let me tell you something else about that. Because immediately following verse 28 comes, can you guess? Verse 29. Mind blown, I know. You know what word verse 29 starts with? Four. F-O-R. Not the number. Four. And that word tells us this because following that word, verses 29 and 30, begins to describe our salvation in Jesus Christ. What many theologians call the golden chain of redemption. And all of verse 29 and 30 tell us that because it begins with four that what is said in verse 28 is true because of what is stated in verse 29 and 30. Because God is the one who has saved you. He is the one who will bring good to you. Any God who is enough to save you, what will he give to you? Well, you better consider that because if you're gonna give your whole life, you better know what you're in for. But the God that we worship has said, when I save you, I am all in for you. You don't get a percentage of God's sovereignty and others get a different percentage. It's either 100% or none percent. It's all or nothing with God. And that's what Paul is teaching us here. He's a God who is worthy to be worshiped and to be served. Why? Because he saved us. He is sovereign for us. Listen, here's the first application I want you to walk away with today. What God did in and for Daniel's life was not particular to Daniel, but it was distinctive of our God. The God that we worship is this kind of God, not just for Daniel, but for you, for you. Over history, over the events of your life, and over the very identity of who you are. That's what Daniel is telling us. Maybe you would say, but God, I want to serve you, but I don't want it to be hard. I don't really want it to hurt. I want to know I'll be okay. That's like saying, God, I'm, I'm willing to go into the fiery furnace for you. I just don't want it to be turned on. Lord, I'm happy to go into the lion's den as long as they're not in there. These phrases are so familiar to modern day Christianity. Why? Because they're the same phrases that have been familiar to Christians through every age and time. If Daniel teaches any lesson, it is this. This would be a good time to buckle your seatbelt. God is not safe, but he is sovereign and he is good. The Lord has his own thrown into a fiery furnace, heated seven times hotter. Why? So those who are not his own will see the power of his might and believe in him. 
Why would he do that? Because he's Lord of the flames. He doesn't fear the heat or the smoke. The king has his own thrown into the lion's den of another king. Why? Because our king is the lamb who lays down with the lion and fears not. God said, be sure and take all of those temple accessories that you're hauling. I need somebody to keep them in good condition for my people. We've got a little session, a little come to Jesus meeting, you might call it, that we're going to have for a few years. And I just need to make sure somebody's taking care of all this temple wear. That's why they were taken to Babylon. Friends, anybody can be a tourism influencer. Anybody can become a zoo advocate. But Daniel's asking who is ready to stand up and serve the Almighty with their whole life? You will be mocked and scorned. You will be hated. You will be lied about. You will be wrongly accused. You will be condemned and you may even die if you dare to stand up. But you will never be in threat of ever being separated from God and his glory. And your life will never be without eternal usefulness, eternal meaning and purpose, eternal Glory. Instead of asking, why do you do this, God, and why must it be so hard? Daniel tells us to ask, why does what is normal from God in the scriptures so often feel so foreign to us today? The second application I want you to take is this. Faith views God's sovereignty to see his providential care over history to trust his perfect plan through events and to count our life for the purpose of his glory. Beware, Christian, lest you think your life is not all that important to God by saying, well, I'm no Daniel, you're not, but God is still God. As a matter of fact, thinking this way is a first order tactic of the enemy to deceive you into stealing God's glory from your life by you rationalizing and condoning the sin of living for self. Your life matters eternally to God. He saved you for your whole life to declare his glory. And Daniel commends us, look to God who alone is worthy and sovereign and then look at our lives and to ask of ourselves, am I standing for the king whose kingdom, dominion, and rule is eternal? Or am I bowing down to the world and its demands? Am I sold out to serve the one whom the ancient of days has ordained? Or am I selling out to a world that promises more and better but only delivers disappointing and frustrating. Christian, be careful that you don't play the game of secret follower of Jesus, where you make little allowances and compromises in your life that are no big deal because who's gonna know anyway? So that you can then consume today's indulgences, you can choose convenience over difficulty or pleasure over hardship. It'll kill you every time. And parents, maybe the better lesson for us to learn in all this is this. Are you raising your children to honor God wholeheartedly in all of life? 
you may never be threatened with the fiery furnace. But your children may. Are you training them to go in or to run and bow down? Are you raising your children to honor God wholeheartedly? What would they say? Let me tell you a story about little Johnny. Little Johnny climbed into the back of the family van one Sunday after church. He had huge tears streaming down his face, unable to compose himself. His whole body was just convulsing as he sobbed and sobbed. And man, it scared mom and dad to death. They looked at each other and went, what in the world is going on? What is wrong with little Johnny? They said, little Johnny, what's wrong? Between all the sobs and the sniffles, he said, the preacher said he wanted all of us kids to grow up in good Christian family. <laughs> but I want to stay with you guys. <laughs> 35 years of vocational ministry. And in that period of time, every major decision that I or my wife and I have made to determine the trajectory, the direction, or the next step of our life. Those decisions have all been made by convictions and decisions that were established in my life before the age of 19. Will you stand up? Or will you bow down? The only answer to that question will be determined by whether you surrender to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, your whole and your all, or whether you just put it off to another time. Let's pray.